we're starting a series today uh, on relating the basics. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it so much. Um, if you take away the Bible, you stop and think about it. You take away the Bible, you take away very much the entire Christian message. Yet there's a lot of confusion that surrounds the Bible. Um, there's a survey that Barna did that showed that 42% of Americans say that they believe that the Bible is the literal word of God. Yet half of that number say that the Bible is hard for them to understand and very few actually read it. Yet, when it comes to God's mission, how are we going to relate the truths of Scripture if we don't personally embrace it ourselves? As we go through this series over the next several weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at the basics of our faith with an eye on teaching these basics to other people. And hopefully, as we do that, we're going to be encouraged about the things that we already know. And we're going to be challenged to actually talk about our faith and the different things that we will be looking at. And hopefully... By the end of this, you will be equipped with some ideas, maybe some you've been reminded of, maybe some new ones, that will give you a way to relate the truths of Scripture in a cogent, uh, cogent way. Now, I want to start with one very big truth. If you have been a Christian for around five years, You've gone to Sunday school, you've gone to small group studies, you've come and you've listened to sermons, you've done some reading. Believe it or not, you are already an expert on the Bible because you already know more than 80% of Americans today. Well, they know stuff about it, they just have never read it. That makes you the expert because you've actually gotten into it. But here's a problem. When you become an expert, you start having um, something we call jargon. Have you ever heard of jargon before? That's industry language, right? And all of a sudden, we can get to a point, and the more you're a Christian, and the more you get into Christianese, the harder it is for you to actually relate a simple principle because you use words that other people don't understand. Now, I'm not saying they're not good words. I'm just saying when we're looking at relating the truths of our faith, we have to consider who we're talking to and their level of understanding. And sometimes that means we adjust our nomenclature. We adjust the words that we use. Because just knowing the jargon and relating it to people who have little exposure to biblical truth is, is not the same thing. Now, today we're going to focus on some basic things about the Bible. We're going to talk about God, Holy Spirit, Jesus. We're going to talk about church and some other things as we go through the next four or five weeks. What is the Bible? Well, that depends on what you mean by the term. <laughs> 
because that term Bible gets used for things other than what we call the Holy Bible. In fact, there is a beauty Bible out there, which is all about cosmetics. And then there's the freshwater fisherman Bible, which is all about how to catch fish. And then you've got the golfer's Bible, which has done me no good whatsoever. And then there's the shooting Bible and the grimoire. Ooh, there's a good word, the grimoire Bible, which is all about music and music recording. And then you have the cooking Bible, and you can go on and on and on. In fact, a few years ago, there was a paper in Upland, California. The local newspaper actually had a tagline in there that said, if your religion is sports, then our newspaper is your Bible. So you see, that term gets used in a lot of different ways. But the term Bible means a book or a collection of books that is regarded as authoritative on a topic. So books that are using that Bible in their title, what their claim is is that they're the standard authority on a particular subject or topic. No other book is more authoritative on the topic of Christian faith than the Christian Bible. That is actually less of a book and more of a library. How many books are in it? You guys know how many? 66. See, I knew you were experts. And they're divided into two groups. What are they? The Old Testament and the New Testament, right? Yes. They're written by over 40 authors over a period of about 1,500 years. In how many languages? Gotcha. Three. (laughs) I thought somebody would at least say two, but y'all knew better. In fact, I saw heads go. (laughs) Don't ever do that in class. You know what happens when you go like this in class? Your name's about to get called, right? Yeah. Three different languages. Yet... The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament has one unified message about God's plan for man. How we're designed, how we should live, and how we should be connected to him and how we should relate to other people in the world around us. 39 Old Testament books written primarily in Hebrew and Aramaic from about 1500 B.C. to about 400 B.C., the Hebrew Bible, which was collected roughly about 300 years before Christ, although same books, they have a different order than the Bible that you're used to reading. The Roman Catholics add to that 15 books of the Old Testament, which are called the Apocrypha. Now, these are books that didn't make the cut. Apocrypha kind of sort of has the idea of of, of hidden books. It was the Council of Trent uh, about 500 years ago when the Roman Catholics uh, put their canon together and they brought those books in. Now, these books were known to the Jewish uh, rabbis, the Jewish priests, who canonized their Bible before Christ. And yet, these were books that were set aside 
What they were after were books that they felt were uh, totally inspired by God. And those books, although the, the apocryphal books, they're set aside, they're actually very respected for their devotional content. And you have no reason to be scared of reading them, okay? There's some good things that are in there. In fact, some of those books are actually quoted by people that are in the New Testament, including Paul and Jesus. So they make for good reading. It's just that they were not part of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And so therefore, they're not considered part of the Old Testament. They're a second-tier book. The New Testament has 27 books in it, written exclusively in Greek over about a 50-year period during that first century A.D. Very soon after Jesus left, these writings started to show up. And they detail eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, of his ministry, of his death, and even his resurrection. It details the first 25, 30 years of the history of the church and how the church grew and expanded even as far as Rome. And it has practical teaching in it. Ways that show us how to live in the light of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, both the Old Testament and the New Testament present a unified portrait of God's plan and purpose for our world. But the Bible is filled with different types of literature. You will find in their history, poetry, humor, prophecy, romance, letters, biographies, songs, journals, advice, laws, and stories. And each one of those need to be read in the context of which they were, were written. Gutenberg, have you ever heard of Gutenberg before? What did he do? What did he invent? The printing press. When did he invent it? <laughs> I got it written down. That's how I remember it. 15, so did somebody say the year you were born? I'm sorry, 1568, right? 1568, Gutenberg's press comes into existence. And do you know what the first book was that was printed on that press? It was the Bible. Do you know what is the number one best-selling book of all time? It's the Bible. That's why I will tell people, you know, if, if you love literature, you, you, you like argumentation, you, you enjoy that kind of a thing. This is the piece of literature that's been sold more books than will ever be sold by any other singular work. If you want to be intellectually honest, you at least ought to read it for yourself. Or if you just like history and reading, you should read it simply on that merit. Wycliffe Bible translators say that there's about 7 million people in the world. There's about 6,900 known languages that are out there. 
there is approximately 2,400 of those languages that have at least one book that's been translated into that language. There's only about 404 or so, 414 that have the whole Bible translated into that language. There's roughly about 1,500 translation projects that are going on at any one time. And there is 340 million people who don't have direct access to the Word of God. What I mean by that is it's not in their heart language, the language that they grew up in. And we, English-speaking folk, we're truly blessed because the Bible has been translated at least 30 different times into English. Different days, different times, and as language changes, it gets updated. In fact, there's about a quarter of the number of Americans that are here, about 24%, who say that they own at least five Bibles, that there's at least five Bibles in their home. We believe that God's holy word is, is a lamp to our feet and a, and a light to our path. Its words will I hide in my heart so that I might not sin against God. Yes? But what do Christians believe about the Bible? Today I'm just going to hit four concepts. I mean, this, this could be a series in and of itself. We can go way, way deeper than you ever want to know. And let me remind you, don't ever ask a, qu- a clockmaker what time it is because, you know, it just take them forever. But I want to talk about four key concepts that come out of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Read with me if you would. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some of you as kids may have memorized that. I want to give you the opportunity to memorize it this week too by the time we're over. A couple of things we need to remember. The Bible is relevant to all Generations, there is something about that book that it is timeless and it applies. Let's look at what it says about itself. Uh, first, we see that word scripture, okay? That term just means sacred writings. Now, there are other religions, especially ancient religions, that have their own sacred writings. In fact, you know some of them. Islam. What, what is the sacred writing of Islam? It's the, the Quran or the Quran. Right, absolutely. Um, what is the sacred writings for the Mormons? You know that too, the Book of Mormons. Now, it's not an ancient book. But they put it up above the Bible and its authority. Hinduism. Anybody know what the uh, holy book, the scriptures of Hinduism is? I have to look at it every time because the word looks strange. It's the Bhagavad Gita. 
And if I didn't have it written here, I couldn't say that. Bhagavad Gita. Almost all ancient religions have some sort of scripture to them. Now, when Paul is saying this, he is not talking in reference to any of those. In fact, he is specifically talking about the Hebrew Bible. Do you know why I say that? Because the New Testament wasn't written yet. Now, we, by extension, knowing that there is inspiration of God that is in that works that we call the New Testament, we, we extend that there. But in context, he's, he's talking about the Old Testament Scripture, which should inform us of something. We may be people of the New Testament, but we better be people of the whole Bible. Because there are things in the Hebrew Bible, in that Old Testament, that we can learn many things about. But that scripture, the Old Testament, is God-breathed. Now, some translations may say inspired by God, which is correct, but it's really it's a limited understanding. And I'll explain to you. Follow me. Help me here. What I want you to do is I want you to take a deep breath with me and hold it. Ready? One, two, three. Now, why did you just do that? It goes in and it what? Comes out, right? You see, here's the thing. We have to inspire, which is to take in. And then when we release, when we let it out, what is that? That is expire, right? Inspiration comes from that word inspire. We use that all the time. Something that is inspirational is something that that motivates us in a positive direction, right? And the word expire, we don't use that nearly as much, but when we do, it's usually in the context of what? Of somebody having um, breathed their last, yes? But this term that Paul uses is not just inspiration. It has both of those, inspiration and expiration, both are equally important. Okay, have you ever played in, in a band, maybe back in high school, maybe growing up years, played, uh, well, Cindy Benson, she still plays flute, right? She was up here. She's been playing that with us some, right? Um, clarinet, trumpet, trombone, saxophone. Maybe, maybe your instrument is your voice singing, Right? But when you put that instrument to your lips and you're getting ready to make music, how do you make music? Is it the breath in or it's the breathing out where the music comes from? You ever thought about that? You see, it's that release of what is breathed into the instrument. And see, this is where Paul is coming when he says that Scripture is God-breathed because it's a fundamental characteristic of Scripture. What makes 
these writings sacred. It's not that God breathed them in. It's that God breathed them out. Which is to say, the ultimate origin of the scripture is God. Now, it was written through the hands of humans under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. Because it comes from God, it is useful. Oh no, stopped working. Uh, Asya, there you go, thanks. It is useful, which means practical or beneficial. Um, it, it has a vital relevance for our lives. And this can be seen in, in four different areas. Uh, the first one is teaching. What's teaching? That's when you are giving instruction, right? Gives us instruction in how to live life. In fact, what it assumes is that we come to the Bible as learners. Because if you think about it, only learners can be taught. And it's not just of heavenly things. It's of practical things like being a good spouse, being a good parent, loaning money. How do you have integrity in business? Uh, and so forth. And in fact, you want to read some really practical stuff, look at Proverbs, look at James, look at the letters of Paul. Useful in teaching, also rebuking. That's that next word there. Now that word sounds harsh to us, doesn't it? What it really means is confronting a wrong idea or a wrong belief about life. And, it, and there's a, an assumption here. There's an assumption that if we are left to our own, we will have misconceptions about what life is about. Because we're going to say life is about what? Me. And yet what we read in Scripture, what we understand from God is that life is about Him and about others, not about us. In fact, Scripture teaches us that we're never more like Satan than when our focus is where? Right here. And we're never more like God than when our focus is where? Out here. How does the world measure success? It's really wrapped up in wealth, isn't it? Even if you're a successful athlete, how do you know they're successful? Because they're rich. Right? But the Bible says success is something different. Success comes from the person's faithfulness towards God. So therefore, the world's criterion for success has been rebuked. And I need to change my definition in order to conform with God's definition of success. The next one, the word correcting or correction. It's very similar to rebuking, except it focuses on behavior, not belief. All of us lose our way sometimes. And we can easily get off course and, and roam around in circles. Yet scripture, the, the Bible, helps to correct our course 
and to get us back in line with what we are called to do. It trains us so that we can live the life of integrity that God calls us to, which gets us to training in righteousness. This focuses on that on the Bible's role to help us live pleasing to God. There's an assumption that a life of integrity really does not come natural to us. We need some help in order to learn what integrity is and how that is in God's eyes. The net result, the net effect of that is that godly men, godly women become thoroughly equipped to live life how God intended us to live. And the Bible equips us with what we need. You've heard the old saying, haven't you? Randy, I bet you have. If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like what? A nail. Yes. Well, you see, the Bible is actually a complete spiritual toolbox for us. For us to live a full and rich spiritual life and devotion to Jesus Christ. Now, how does it do that? Well, within that collection of books, there are stories of ordinary people who are dealing with ordinary problems of lust and greed, struggles for political power from government oppression and taxation and trying to deal with the issue of trying to make ends meet. We read about real families in there who are dealing with raising kids and kids dealing with emotional abandonment and divorce and extramarital affairs. There are widows and orphans who are wondering where their next meal is coming from. There are people that are dealing with unfair bosses and overbearing fathers and prodigal kids who are throwing their life away under the illusion of of independence. There are real people who are dealing with real grief. The death of spouses, the deaths of children, the results of wartime loss. People struggling with everyday pressures, wondering where God is in all of it. Real people dealing with real stuff. And it's all through the pages. And God's word shows us a real God who is showing us that this life can be better when we allow him to be in it. The Bible communicates God's voice. Now, there are some skeptics who will protest on this, and they will say, but everyone has their own interpretation of the Bible, and you know what? I'll give that to you. Uh, That's true when we treat it like an encyclopedia that has disconnected thoughts and ideas. 
And it's easy to take one or two verses when all you're going to do is just reach in there and pull them out and make it say just about anything you want to. There's a very classical example of that. A a, a guy wants to figure out what it is that God wants him to do and he wants to know God's will for his life and he decides he's going to open up the book and he's just going to randomly point and God's going to direct his finger to the page and he's going to find exactly what he needs to hear. So he closes his eyes, he opens the book, he takes his finger, he sticks it in and he comes down to Matthew 27, 5 and he reads it and it says, and Judas went out and hanged himself. And he scratches his head and he's going, well, I don't know what that has to do with anything. Well, let me try again. So he closes the book and he opens it again. He, he closes his eyes, he takes his finger, and he lands this time on Luke ten twenty seven, where it says, um, now go and do likewise. <laughs> Friends, if that's the way we're going to treat the Bible, well, good luck to you. This is where 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21 comes into play. Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along. By the Holy Spirit. Peter warns us not to read our own ideas into the scripture. Not to force our own interpretation on it. But to take the Bible on its own terms. Why? Because the ultimate origin of the Bible is God. God initiated it. God inspired it. And although human writers wrote the words, they spoke from God. So, since God has spoken through the Bible, it is important that we approach it as a learner, listening with a will to apply what we learn to our lives. The Bible is our standard. In the Reformation movement of which this church is a part, there are several things that came out, and we're going to talk some about history as we go through this this next few weeks. They had several maxims that came out of that. One of those is our only rule of faith and practice is the Bible. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. That means the inspiration of the Bible takes precedent over anything else. And where there's a thus saith the Lord, that's what we do. And if there's a spot, if there's a place, and there's a lot of them where it has to be interpreted, then we allow for different interpretations. Because the main thing is, is we want to be loving towards each other. And where there is a place where that can be interpreted, I'm not going to force you to agree with me. I might explain to you why I believe the way I believe, but I'm not going to force you to believe me. Because where it speaks, we speak. Where it's silent, we're silent. 
and Jesus said in, in John 17, towards in the prayer that he was making right before he was arrested, he makes this statement. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Who's he talking about? Sanctify them. Who's the them? He's talking about his disciples, isn't he? But if you actually read the whole context of his prayer, he's talking about you. Don't believe me? Go to John 17, read it. He is praying not only for his disciples, but everybody that will be affected by them. And that's us. He's praying for you. That idea of sanctification is a, is a setting apart. To put us into a position to become holy before a holy and infinite God. How do we do that? We do that through conversion. That as we read, we're living a life of lordship and we see something that convicts us. Instead of just being irritated and going on, we adjust. And our life becomes converted more and more towards the life that God would have us live. As we apply the word, we come to know God and Christ Change is just a natural result. So if you are reading the Bible openly, it will change you. It's changed me. Its primary purpose, though, is not education. It is transformation. We read in Hebrews 4, we read this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit. How do you do that? Dividing soul and spirit. Joints and marrow. I can wrap my head around that one. And it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Ooh, now I get that soul and spirit thing. But do you hear what he's saying there? And many of y'all have memorized this. What's it saying? The purpose of the word of God is to transform us. Just as a caterpillar is transformed into a butterfly, God works through the Bible to change us into devoted followers of Jesus who wholeheartedly love God and love others. Now think about this. If it wasn't for the Bible, would we even know there was a creator? Well, probably because creation screams a creator because it, it screams some kind of intelligent design. But even if we could figure that out, how would we know about his faithfulness? How would we know what our purpose is in this life? Would we know anything of Christ or death or resurrection? How would we understand the concept of grace, of forgiveness, of a decisional kind of love that loves the unlovable simply because you choose to do what is for their best good regardless of who they are? How would we understand agape? 
how would we know that God, this creator, this designer, wants a relationship with us? And that he created us to be in relationship with him. You want to be intellectually honest? You at least ought to read it. But realize that we don't read to merely be informed. Read it to be transformed. God gave us his word so that we can get to know him. And he gave us his son so we could be related to him. And Jesus died an earthly death so that we never have to die a spiritual death. And he rose from the grave to prove the faithfulness of God, that he is faithful to his word. And his communication will never fail or forsake any of those who will give him their life. Now, I want you to pick up that connection card. This is going to become part of our ritual moving forward. I want everyone to do this. At least write down your name and your email. If you're visiting with us, you want to mark first time, second time, whatever, you can do that. If you want to give us more information, feel free to or not to. But everybody at least write your name and your email down on the front. And I want you to turn it over. Okay? Not only is a time of invitation a time of call to action, but it's a call to action for all of us. If you have gotten something out of this message today, I want you to respond. Maybe simply just commit to memorize 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Or maybe read that whole section there so that you get the full context of what Paul is saying. Maybe today you'll accept it's the first of the year. It's a great time to do this because you can start today and not be behind at all. The five by five by five New Testament reading challenge. Maybe you want to find out more about the guest services volunteer training that's coming up. Or maybe you want to find out what it is to be a follower of Jesus or learn something about baptism or church membership. Just mark it on here. As we move into our closing hymn, our gentlemen are going to come back around as we are singing and they will pass the offering plates again, the the bags around, for everybody to put your connection card in the basket. So please do that. Take something home today and take action on it and allow the word of God to transform your life. Father God, we thank you for this time and this day. And we thank you, Father, for what you have allowed us to learn And we thank you 
that your word never goes out and comes back empty, but that it always, always comes back full. Father, deal with our hearts in the way that is positive. Teach us and train us in your way. And let us know that we are all loved because you love us. As we move into this time, Father, we pray for your leading and your guidance. And I pray, Father, that this year, that everyone in this room will have a wholly new you in 2022. We're listening for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.